At IKEA, your dream home is a blue bag away. No matter the size of your space or budget, we've got everything you need to turn your dreams into reality. And now with new lower prices on hundreds of our most popular products, bringing the dream home is even easier. Like the gray Strandom wing chair, was $369, now $299. And the IKEA Plus 365 nine-piece cookware set was $129.99, now $89.99. And hundreds more. Shop new lower prices at ikea-usa.com today. Going for your first ever run around the park. Literally running errands all over town. Running for the finish line and your personal best. If you run, you're a runner. Find the shoes and clothes to run your way at newbalance.com slash running. New Balance. Run your way. Hello and welcome to series three, episode five of Out With Susie Ruffle. We've been going for about a year now, mid-March. That's about the time we started the first series, mid-March. What am I talking about? It is the end of March, isn't it? It's almost April. Um, we've been going for nearly a year, third series. I'm pretty chuffed with that. Um, how are you? I hope you are doing okay. I always ask how you are and I appreciate you can't answer me, but I feel like You know, if you're in lockdown by yourself, maybe no one's asked you that. And maybe just say it out loud and you might feel a bit better. Um, I hope that you're doing okay today. I'm doing all right. I've just done a bit of exercise, guys. I'm still in my gym gear. I feel uh, pretty smug that I've managed to get out of the house on a Sunday morning. So that's all good. About to make a pie if you're interested in what I'm doing. Um, So I'm having a pretty good day. Uh, I've been, as ever, just blown away by the amount of you that get in touch and tweet about the show. Also, the numbers that the podcast is doing now is building constantly. So those of you that have told your mates or tweeted about it, like people are finding it, which is amazing. It means that I can carry on making it and I can devote even more time to getting exciting guests and brilliant people on the show. So uh, thank you for that. Thank you for being my companion over this strange year of lockdown. If you want to get in touch, please do. As you know, I'm on the socials. Don't know, I'm 35. Am I young enough to still say the socials? Yeah, sure, the socials. Why not? And also, obviously, if you want to email me, I am at hello at outwithsusieruffle.com. A lot of you get in touch and say um, how much you enjoy the listener emails, and I really love them too. It was just an idea at the beginning because I thought, oh, well, that'd be a nice way to sort of package the show. And now it's become... Some people say, oh, it's my favourite bit of the show, which uh, my future mother-in-law actually said that to me this weekend. It's one of my favourite bits of the show when you when you share other people's stories. So I'm really pleased that so many of you are enjoying that. And I'm delighted by the amount of you that get in touch. Um, and, and if you fancy it, please do. OK, let's kick off with an email from a guest. Dear Susie, what does one even say? Happy COVID, hope you're well. Cheers to an imminent vaccination. Usually I ask things like, what's the best meal you've had in the past two weeks? Or what's your favourite book of the last year? But email is famously one-sided. Mine are an Indian butter chicken recipe with cauliflower, rice and naan. And you should talk to someone by Laurie Gottileb. Laurie Gottileb. Or The Fellowship of the Ring. Uh, well, if you're, if you're interested, what's the best meal I've had in the last two weeks? Oh, do you know what? There's an Indian restaurant near me that is so good called Gurkha's. And um, I had a really great dinner from there. And what book? I mean, I've read so many books for the podcast this year, um, which has been so brilliant that I've, I've read more than I often do. That Mara Wilson book's brilliant. I've read a couple of books by Juno Dawson. They're brilliant. Uh, what else? I'm just looking. I'm just turning around to look at my bookcase. Uh, Trivial Pursuits by Raven Smith, Queer Prophets, which was um, sort of curated by Ruth Hunt, Baroness Ruth Hunt, who was, who was in the first series. I've also read Judy Dench, Scenes from My Life, because I love Judy Dench. Um, but thanks for asking. Um, right, let's get back to the email. It's hard to imagine writing to a complete stranger. I definitely and intellectually know you're a stranger to me, as I am to you, but I feel as if you've been my friend, chatting on out throughout my apartment and on my walks. I feel like I've been hanging out and have been having big conversations, which is crazy to think because you have no idea who I am. But your conversations and your work on the podcast has been so supremely relevant and extremely important to me. And I've tried to think about how to write this. And I always want to explain my entire life story for context. But the basics are, hello, 
I'm a 30-year-old woman from Washington, D.C. in the United States, born and raised in upstate New York, just across Ontario Lake from Toronto, Pennsylvania for uni, and then to Boston for grad school. The Northeast cultural influence is relevant, which is why I mention all of this. But the premise, I'd been in Boston for seven years, 2012 to 2019, at grad school and a job that had lightened a righteous anger and extreme exhaustion. I finally got myself a new job and officially left my favourite US city for this new one that is slightly farther, almost two south in January 2020, notably right before COVID hit. In Boston, I'd been living with a good friend of mine from grad school and her lovely dog, Penny, a returned hound mix that I miss dearly. And in my move to DC, I transitioned to living alone. Bold move before a pandemic, but it was a new era. I welcomed a new city, a new job and being newly single. I'd broke it off with my boyfriend after two years in this move. I was ready for a new chapter of all things and had just kicked it all off when we had to quarantine and mask and stop a lot of momentum, which is all fine. Everyone was doing the stopping momentum, mask wearing, isolation thing and being safe. Uh, Maybe not in the US because we managed to place individual liberty above pretty much everything else, including safety, community, the common good and basic logic. Welcome to my country where people can't really have nice things and something as simple as a mask to keep other people safe is sometimes equated to an omission of being a weak sheep of big government. But heaven forbid we ask you not to buy automatic gums and murder people in nail salons or massage parlours or grocery stores or value anything except a cis hetero white male. Who? bad time to be writing all this out. I love the potential of my country, but I hate our current reality. What I'm saying is I'm not special or different to my fellows all over the globe that were going to live their lives and didn't because they chose to be safe and help their communities instead of being dicks. Which I love, but it's hard. You're left alone with a lot of silence, still air, restless feelings talking to yourself to fill the void, playing a lot of Netflix and YouTube and podcasts and music, and you only know a few people in your new city, so you spend so much time alone, and you figure out quite quickly your new job may not be the thing you thought it was, and it isn't what you want, and you're just at home at a desk stressing about it every day. I work in international development, helping to implement digital stuff to improve health outcomes. I love it, but lordy loo do I hate the politics and the control the donors have and the influences and truly fucked up incentives and the bullshit that weighs down the sector. And it's an entire life's work of scholarly exploration to explain the aid industry and how flawed it is and how integral and embedded it is and how to achieve the same outcomes in different ways. And all of this, I realise, in my new job in DC, was veiled in impact, but also felt empty and stresses me deeply. I work a lot of waking hours and most of them it's coping and not productive and energetic productivity. And here I am doing that setting context thing. I work a lot and I'm alone a lot in a new city and newly alone. Healthy? Nah, man, not at all. Stress and anxiety build. But when I get a great opportunity to really utilize the all alone time to sort through things in my head throughout this anxious phase. And one of those things, bringing it back to the original point of this, is surfacing in my memory from grad school, when I realized I had my first actual romantic feelings for a woman. She was a friend in grad school and during a night out with a group of friends, we talked about her experiences with men and women and she shared that she was bi. After that disclosure, something happened in me. I saw her differently, but in a deeply comforting way. It was a new feeling. I was so scared of her and I wanted to be around her so badly. I didn't share this realization right away. I was 22 and it was new and I was stretched thin in school and being grad school poor and working so hard. And probably like a year later, I was with my closest group of friends and I mentioned this potential new thing I saw in me as having feelings for women. And one of my friends who was older and fiery and lively and open and someone I looked up to said, really, are you sure? What does that even mean? Is this even real? And I'm not sure if she even said it so outwardly, but the message I took was clear. We only think you can say this because she said she was bisexual. What you feel is not real. And I believe my friend and I believed her doubt. And I don't think she was being malicious or cruel or intentional. I think she was just as surprised as me and was processing it out loud in real time. But she was part of this group of people that work in international health. We are gritty, resourceful, usually lefty liberal, comical, jaded, idealistic, hopeful, and an open bunch. 
We talk gladly about placentas and evidence-based medicine and serving vulnerable populations within a minute of meeting one another for the first time. And you have to be able to adjust and understand and manoeuvre within cultures wildly different to your own and value evidence and empathy and tangible outcomes above pretty much everything else. So hearing this doubt from someone so engaged and steeped in this giving culture admittedly rocked me. Maybe I wasn't sure at all. Maybe it wasn't real. So easy solution. Let's not think about it. I continued to date men, kept on keeping on and set that little big thought on the back burner. Now, eight years later, we can see how time alone with my thoughts and this COVID era has really upended my reality. I revisited this thought and remembered moments since then when I saw women and had a brief visceral reaction and then thought, no, no, we don't do that, do we? It's not real, which is insane. Typing this out, I can see that it's insane, especially because I've been trying to be an ally my whole life. I have queer family members, queer friends and queer role models and I want to be an ally and I truly believe that love is love is love is love and I've wanted to emulate acceptance and support the LGBTQIA plus movement and their existence my whole life and I want that freedom for everyone everywhere and I intellectually support all of this. It's not hard to support others, I'm recently finding it's much harder when it's you. I haven't felt what internalised homophobia feels like until right now. And I've never realised how hard it is to throw it off, especially when you don't believe yourself. But recent times, COVID, in self-quarantine, I watched a lot of things to cope with the stress of the pandemic and the unfulfilling job and the crushing loneliness. Constantly carrying my laptop around my apartment, playing something to fill the quiet. And a lot of those things were British panel shows because they're smart, pithy, funny and usually unrelated to most of US politics that trigger a deeply stressful and emotional reaction. And through these British panel shows, I subsequently sought out more content from the comics I like. Stand-up routines, podcasts, whatever I could find. The accent, the UK politics, the smart intellectual edge, and the lack of North American flavour of privilege, racism, sexism, and dark traits. It was a salve and a welcome distraction. And through this consumption, I found many great comics, including you and your work, thank you, and including Mae Martin's. And the show Feel Good. I watched it in January 2021 and I swear I felt a ping in my brain. The deep and swirling thoughts around my sexuality and feelings for women, my fear, my uncertainty, they were all unleashed and flew out in front of me, demanding attention. And I was resistant. Why? I'm still sorting through that. But once these things had floated up in front of me and confronted me on their own free will, as in my subconscious looked at my consciousness and said a solid fuck you we are doing this because you absolutely have the time i realized that maybe i'd been wrong about a few things probably many things and that my inner voice had been telling itself lies for my whole life that i had been wrong about everything i'd ever told myself and i truly wasn't sure what to do so naturally i started listening to all the interviews with all my uk personas all of them all the ones i could find people talking about being queer and this is how i found out of course i started with your interview with may but then i started at the beginning and plowed through and what is impressive in my mind was this congratulatory feeling i had for myself of being someone that had supported the lgbtqia plus movement and rights and support but always thought of it as pieces of my life that were other people's experiences, that I had been a good ally and that I wasn't homophobic, I hope, and that I welcomed the trans community and that all was a-okay, but it had never been about me. It had always been about other people and it's easy to support other people. Now I realize it actually was about me. For the first time, I felt the fact that there wasn't an other group. All these stories were also an experience I was going to share personally. I was currently experiencing in my mental turmoil right now. I felt it. I feel it. I had previously done this insidiously magical thing where it was still all othered in my head. It was all right, but as long as it was for other people. It was an integral part of my reality before, but now it was. And the most precedent differences was now not only that it was about me, but that I would feel it all. The emotion of it all spilled out and hit me like a brick wall, a very solid, very hard, very strong brick wall. Have you ever had a whole bottle of wine and been crying on your hands and knees on the floor of your bedroom, big wet tears, sobbing alone because you've been ignoring yourself, but she's here now and she's so angry and so ignored and so confused and so powerful. Just me? No? Cool, 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 cool. Well, she's here now. We're here now. I'm right here and I'm still coming out to myself. 
I didn't realise, even though I've listened to many stories now, it's not always just a moment. It's a long process. At least it is for me, day after day. And I'm not even sure what I'm coming out as. All I know is that I'm not straight anymore. But in its foundation, I know that coming out after my big reckoning in January because of Feel Good provided me with a gut punch. It hasn't been a single moment. It's been a thing that I feel and touch and bear and carry and run my hands over day after day. My whole reality has shifted and I'm getting to know myself every time I wake up again, as if I'm a stranger all over again. It's not the feeling I had since I was little. I think I was truly straight for a long time and my sexuality has changed. I think it's a new aspect of who I am has evolved and developed and surfaced and grown and emerged over time. And I love that that can happen. This version of me saw what life could be in grad school and took her entire experience of life and realized she could do it differently. An idea introduced by someone she liked and trusted when she was 22 and she hasn't looked back since. Turns out she almost left me behind because I refused to acknowledge her. But also turns out she was never going to leave me behind, she just needed me to catch up with her. Or something. Regardless of where all this came from, how old this is, or how angry or abandoned or freaky she feels, I do know that I see her now. I see more of me now. And listening to you talk to all these people, these huge and important, visceral, truthful people, has given me so much to cling to, to bite into, to feel, to process, to embrace. I've been alone for a year and I've been stretched out and maybe even lost my grip a little, but your work has thrown out a map and I'm reading it and I'm so grateful, not only for you just existing, but for reaching out and creating a community within a bigger community that has the ability to welcome and to coach and to support and love people just as they are. I'm listening and processing these stories in a whole new way and getting to know myself in a wholly new way. And I just wanted to say thank you. I'm one of the many that feel a connection because of what you've done. And I hope you know how important it is for me and for all of us. So thanks and keep on keeping on. And if you ever come to the US on tour, I'll be so honoured and game and excited and very, very chill when I say hello to you after a gig. Cheers. I mean... Thank you so much for getting in touch. I haven't shared your name because I wondered whether, because you mentioned what you do for work, whether you could somehow get in trouble. And I'd hate that to come back because I had said something on a podcast. Um, but thank you so much um, for your email. I, I I wanted to share it. It's a bit longer than the ones that we usually share, but I loved it. I love that it was that long. So please, uh, please, please know that. And I'm so pleased that the podcast has helped you and has been there for you. It's a strange thing to say about a podcast, but... I know that I feel like that about podcasts and um, yeah, I'm sort of floored by this email and I'm delighted. And uh, if I ever do tour the States, which, oh my God, I would love to, I'd absolutely love to go on tour in the States. Um, please come and say hello and uh, and we can have a pint. Uh, yeah, well, what a joy to receive that message and thank you for sharing that with me. Okay, let's share one more before we get into today's interview. Uh, there's a trigger warning on this about eating disorders. So if that doesn't feel like something you can listen to right now, maybe skip this part. Hi Susie, I recently had the joy of coming across your podcast. It's pretty fabulous. I'm arriving a bit late as now I have three series to indulge in and keep me company on my daily walks. In fact, I'm on my daily walk right now in a northern seaside town. I'm grateful for these lockdown days for the sea view, even if it's very grey. Hearing your guests and listeners speak and write about their experiences freely and openly has felt liberating. I'm a queer woman and I feel really lucky to have a loving family, but I struggle with shame and a good old dose of internalized homophobia. Pretty much the only thing I feel proud about being gay is my wildly wonderful girlfriend. The rest I'm working on. I'm in a process of unpacking which bits of me are me and which bits are, well, the theater I've unconsciously built. For many years, I felt like I'm a few steps back from whatever I'm putting on display for others. And it turns out that feeling of separation is not the recipe for a thriving mental health. Who would have thought? When I'm listening to your guests, not only is it a massive privilege to hear their stories, but it also feels like I activate a seething sand mode as I unconsciously search for the little gold nuggets that I resonate with. And it's been a massive help in the process of dismantling that theater. It was the episode with Jude, uh, 
just let people know my friend Jules now goes by the name Jude I think we're going to probably I've just actually texted them to ask if they want me to change the name but just so you know which episode we're talking about it was the episode with Jude that caught me off guard since puberty I've had an interesting relationship with my body alongside a colorful eating disorder history hearing them share their experiences stopped me in my tracks quite literally I found a bench and for the next few days I kept going back to the episode just I suppose processing Since I began listening to the podcast, I've managed to bring conversations up with my therapist that I could never have done before. It's fecking terrifying, but also making me feel lighter. I've always felt I needed this space, but I'm beginning to realize I can create it and explore things here, rather than having to do it in a drastic new city, new life, new identity escapade. I've realized I'm at risk of using this letter as a therapy session. So on that note, I'll leave it here. But just a resounding thank you to you and your brilliant contributors for creating a space for such an intimate and powerful conversations. You do an incredible job and listening to your podcast is a joy. I hope you and those close to you are keeping well. Best wishes. If you'd like to share this letter, please do. But keep my name private or use a faken. That means I can give you any name. Okay, I'm going to call you Marigold. Um, Thank you for saying that. I always feel a little bit embarrassed um, when people say how much... Uh, the podcast has meant to them I mean I I love the fact that people think I'm doing quite well as an interviewer I would absolutely love to sort of have a chat show or something one day so I love interviewing people and I'm a bit nosy about things Um, but um, I feel like I'm learning how to become a really good interviewer I'm constantly trying to get better at it so I'm really pleased um, that people think that I'm good at it but more than anything as you all know as I've said before on the podcast it really is the guests that make it so brilliant um, so thank you for getting in touch, Marigold. Um, and I really appreciate it. I loved uh, the idea of the seething sand mould if you find in the little nuggets that you resonate with. Um, thank you very much for getting in touch. Okay, shall we get on to the interview today, to the brilliant person that's sharing their story with me today? As we learn uh, with an email from last week's, uh, it's important to put out, is it trigger warning, content warning? Is that what people call it? Uh, in this episode, we do discuss rape very briefly, but it does come up. So if that's something you feel like you can't listen to or you don't want to listen to, that is totally fine. Uh, but I'm just putting that warning out there because it might be helpful to some. This episode is with brilliant stand-up comedian Cameron Esposito. Um, I absolutely love her and I've loved her a long time. Now, I appreciate that, um, that, that, that I've just said that I'm always delighted when people say that I'm good at interviewing. In this interview, I get really, really excited um, and I'm a bit more chatty than I normally am. But I was so excited to talk to someone that does my job, but does it in another country and someone that I've listened to for years. So forgive me for sounding a bit like an excited puppy throughout this episode. Um, I hope that you enjoy it. I really, really enjoyed this conversation. I am very excited to share today's guest with you. Cameron Esposito is an LA-based stand-up comic, actor, writer, and podcaster. You might have seen one of her many stand-up specials. There's actually five that you can check out right now on Spotify. Well, I say right now, I obviously mean after you've listened to the podcast. And her book, Save Yourself, is out right now, and I'm currently very much enjoying it. Or you might have seen her TV show, Take My Wife, or one of her many spots on TV. Jay Leno called her the future of comedy, and it's a thrill to have her on today's show. If you aren't aware of Cameron, you really should be. Her stand-up is both daring and hilarious. She was named a comic to watch by the New York Times, Variety, LA Weekly, Time Out LA, Cosmopolitan, and The Guardian. And you need to know about her excellent podcast, Queerty, where she interviews trailblazers and bright lights from the LGBTQ plus family. Uh, It's brilliant. And if you love this podcast, you're going to love that one too. Welcome to the show, Cameron. Oh, thank you. Thanks, Susie. How you Hi, doing? hello. I just I, I I don't have an answer. That's you don't have an answer to that. It's that's, just to give people some context. We are recording this uh, on the eleventh of January, so there's a lot happening in the states currently. Yeah, there is a lot happening in the states. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, there's a lot going on. Um, yeah, there's a lot going on. I'm kind of interested to talk to an American about what your life is like right now. Most of your listeners are European. Yeah, I'd say we get we get uh, American and Canadian. Oh, what. A treat. <laughs> so I'm representing my country in one of our worst moments. So I'm just delighted to be able to speak about what it's like. Please um, do. Tell us. So I live in California, mm-hmm. which is currently one of the worst hit areas for COVID in the States. That being said, I moved a little bit outside of the city center. I live like in the base of 
some mountains. And so I don't know what things feel like over there, but like over here, it just sort of feels like there is no reality anymore. Like we are far enough down a hole of like, there has been no national leadership that made any sense for such a long time that it does feel a little bit like time and space don't exist. Like it just is like a, you're on your own with Amazon. Like that's a little <laughs> bit how it feels. Like, okay. you know, like it's like best of luck. And um, even though California is one of the hardest hit states right now, we even have a governor that like talked about masks as if they were a thing that worked. And some places that's not true. So I just, it's like, I think being in the States right now is sort of, it really feels like living somewhere that doesn't have a federal government. Right. Um, it's also a large landmass mm-hmm. for that to be true. And then on top of that, the stupid fucking rapist and criminal and grifter and murderer. I mean, at this point, he's like just murdered thousands of Americans by hundreds of thousands of Americans by like not taking COVID seriously at all. He uh, is now inciting insurrection. (laughs) How is this? You know, but the thing is, is that like, it does sort of feel like we knew who we were electing. Like they're like, I feel confused about the level of confusion that I'm seeing around me. Like, of course this is going to happen. He literally, one of the things he said when he ran was, I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody in the face and still be elected president. We knew everything about him, and I can't quite figure out, you know, especially since I'm a comic, he often says he's joking, and I know white supremacy is like a very strong mood slash life philosophy, but I am curious if people have thought he was actually joking for any part of the presidency. Since he told us exactly what was going on, but then constantly was like, BTW, don't actually inject yourself with bleach. That was a joke. That's our president. That's our actual real president. I remember when Brexit happened, we were like, God, I mean, no one could do any worse than that. And then America was like, (laughs) we'll have a go. Yeah. We were like, sure. Yeah, hold my pint. Yeah, exactly. We got it. We'll sort this out. Not a problem. Um, But yeah, it just seems, I mean, it feels sort of crazy here in as much as currently in London, in the area that I'm in, apparently one in 20 people have COVID, which is just like, okay. I think it's one in 10 Really? Oh, Jesus. Which is also like, it's not like... Again, I think that what is odd is when this was happening in New York City, you know, I don't know how how familiar your listeners will be with these places, but you've seen them on the television and in as songs. So New York City, it's Manhattan, which is like what people are talking about usually. They're not talking about the other boroughs. They're usually talking about Manhattan when they're, you know, covering New York City in COVID. It's an island. It's a super small island. Population there incredibly densely packed in high-rise buildings. So when that was the epicenter, I feel like maybe you would notice it more because everybody's right next to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but Los Angeles is um, urban sprawl. Like the city just goes a little bit more like like some parts of London. Mm-hmm. There are some parts of London that are really densely packed. And then there are some parts of London that just go yeah, like out to the sides. So it is odd to have this happening in L.A. because also you just sort of have to believe that it's happening because you can't see it. Mm. There is no downtown here. Everybody drives in cars, nobody takes public transportation. So you just have to sort of, you have to trust that the news is real. And we have many people that do not uh, trust that. Yeah, yeah, I mean, we have some of those guys here too. um, Mm. Yes, yes, yes. um, Yeah, and it's mind boggling, completely mind boggling. It's just, it's, it's, when was the last time you were on stage? Uh, like an uh, on an actual physical stage, telling jokes for real people. Real people. Um, I went to Portland, Oregon, mm-hmm. the last place I performed, and that would have been like I think it was the end of February. Right. Um, we had heard COVID was like we like in the U.S. We knew about like Wuhan, mm-hmm. like we knew there was a thing. And I think the first cases had just popped up in like Seattle. Right. So it still felt like risky-ish. Not not so risky, but it was, I think it was like the last weekend I would have traveled anyway. Right. Because then we started hearing about more than one case. But I performed um, at the Moda Center, which is where the Portland Trailblazers play, which is an 
a professional basketball team. So I played in a, like a huge um, stadium for, it was part of a fundraiser. So the last group of people I performed for, many people who were also eating dinner and distracted because they were going to donate money to support a, like educational options for those who are underserved. Always a great option to perform for people who are doing something else. <laughs> yeah. Oh, like eating. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, in, a, and in a stadium, no less, <laughs> you know, like just... <laughs> You know what, tonight I'm just gonna I'm gonna perform just for me. I'm just gonna do that. I'm just gonna yeah. run through this stuff and keep checking my watch. Yeah, like I'll be up here, like listener don't, like no problem. <laughs> the worst. Yeah, I had a show, I had a tour show in Cardiff in Wales uh, the day before we went into a national lockdown. And I remember saying on stage, oh, wow. I was like, oh, I guess I won't be on stage for a couple of months. And it was, and there was like an amazing like joie de vivre because everyone was like, we're out, we're having fun. I'm going to have an extra pint. And like the show's normally like an hour and a half. It was like two hours because I was chatting to so many people. And I was like, yeah, I, I guess I'll do the show again soon. <laughs> did, we, did you know that the, nas- the, the national lockdown would happen the next day? We knew, no, it, we went in, they were like, I think it was two days later and they were like, okay, so we're going to go into a national lockdown. But the, we kept being like, are we... Are they cancel? Are we going to cancel all the shows? Are we going to carry on doing shows? But the theatre was like, we're going ahead, and every audience member turned up. I was like, am I going to do a show to like? Right. It's going to feel like I've not sold. <laughs> and how do you feel not performing? Like I am in withdrawal. I mean, to be honest, yeah. uh, I have been doing a lot of virtual shows because yeah, me too. My book Save Yourself came out the first week of the pandemic, which is a completely insane title for a book to have (laughs) that is released in week one of a global pandemic. Um, Do you think people were like, oh my God, I get that she's a stand-up, but she knows science, great. Everybody's like, oh, the answer, save yourself, yeah. (laughs) Oh, brilliant, okay, great. We'll we'll, we'll all read this and I guess we'll be fine in a week. I mean, I just wish it had had a slightly different cover because it's like me holding a microphone looking serious and angelic. And if it just had been like a needle. Sales would have been through the roof. As it was, it was a bestseller, which felt impossible. Um, but that's uh, amazing. Yeah, thank you. I, like how how we usually go through in in this show is I sort of start from you growing up and working out who you are and all that sort of thing. But it feels like we can sort of do it because I feel like loads of listeners are going to be like, "Let me get the book." So let's talk about it sort of through that lens somewhat. Why did you initially want to write the book? Well, somebody asked me to. <laughs> Right, sure, 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 sure. I would say um, money was the... uh, Someone said, can you do this thing? Yeah, it's funny though, because I say that because, you know, I think that to be a comic right now, and maybe this has always been true in some form, but it's like right now, the expectation is that you also should be able to do all other things. So I had a series that had done really well on BuzzFeed. And then I was, somebody asked me if I would wanted to write a book that would just be like a sort of a light coffee table book. And I was like, sure, sure. And then started writing and realized that I really wanted to tell my coming out story, which is, which is wild because for a long time as a person in the arts, I have been like championing not focusing on our coming out stories because I think they are so overrepresented. And yet, (laughs) I think I hadn't realized how much it affected me because I am funny and I use humor as a way of de-escalating my emotions. And Mm -hmm. which is why I feel like I'm in withdrawal now that I cannot do that. But I think that the other side of that, like I think that's a very good coping mechanism that has helped me survive. I also think the other side of that is that sometimes I was in denial about how much pain I was in because like I was scared out of my mind coming out and I think that to admit that to myself would have been too hard and I also think that the world wasn't really welcoming, kind, friendly and open to me at that time. And so I think I appealed to people the best way I could, which was like essentially with song and dance, you know, as opposed to like, stop hurting me. I made him laugh. Yeah. I mean, listeners to this podcast will know because I've said this before, but I I was exactly the same. I did 
tap and ballet and modern and did the songs and did the singing and was the funny person because I was like, well, if I'm being very funny, you won't notice that I am a massive gay. So if I'm being really funny, it doesn't matter if I've not got a boyfriend because I've kind of got a bit in the school playground and I'll, I'll just do my bit. Yeah. Uh, because that can sort of deviate you looking any closer at me. And yeah. so you, what was so what was sort of suburbia in Chicago in the sort of, I don't know, what is that, late 80s, early 90s, growing up? What was that, what would that have looked like? Well, I grew up in a really homogeneous area. So like pretty much almost everybody was white. There were some Asian and South Asian folks, but many white people. <laughs> and also mm-hmm. um, nobody was gay. That wasn't even a thing. That was something I thought was real. I was raised really, really religious, like super fundamentally Catholic, which I think that we don't always talk about as a faith that mm-hmm. is that extreme. It's like, it's they did such a good job. Congratulations, the Catholic Church. They did such a good job packaging themselves as old and arty and, and then evolving through time. You know, the Pope is literally now, so many people think of as like an environmentalist. I mean, they just have done a very good job yeah. of... You know, and here in the US, they're so closely tied to schooling. Well, I went to a Catholic school in the UK. My family aren't Catholic, but a percentage of kids that lived nearby went to the school because it was a good school. It was pretty full on at school. So I can't imagine what that would be like if you were also going to church as a family every week. Right. I mean, and also that's where you played basketball and that's everybody that you were friends with, you know, and, you know, that's also true in South and Central America. It's true places in Africa. There also some places in Asia where, you know, the Catholic Church like did this really great job of sort of getting a hold of kids and like making sure and that is good. <laughs> then there some yeah, other things yeah. happened with the, those I mean, kids. There's a few, too. There's a few connotations. Yeah, some other there's a few connotations things happened with those kids too. But they also um just the like indoctrination of pairing it with schooling and then so it's your week and it's your weekend and it's your friendships. I mean, it, this like fucked me up to my core. And I also will always feel like I'm missing a little something because I was raised in this like identity that I no longer relate to in such a one-to-one way. I'm still trying to understand, okay, well, if that's not what we're all doing here, then what are we doing here? But I think this is also true for many, many straight people. Um, mm-hmm. Many, many countries, you know, are, are affected in, politically. Um, by this and like thank god for me that I was so very gay that I had to question these things because many people you know I think about if I had been raised the same way and been a straight woman I just I don't know that I would have had a shot at like really liking myself really having a healthy sexuality at all yeah I think that's the thing isn't it like I remember so clearly being at mass or something and then being like you know it's it's all about your sins. And you're like, I'm nine. Like, <laughs> yeah, how, how? Like, I, I'm like, what have I done? <laughs> like, yeah. um, and that, that's a lot for a kid to take on. And then I guess if that's, as you say, something that's like everything that you do, friendships, you know, everything. That must've been tough. So I, I liked in your book when you said that you thought like gay people to you were kind of the same as like leprechauns. Like they were an idea of, a, yeah. of like a, a fictional being. Um, 100% true. So at what point did you realize, and I love that. Um, at what point did you realize like, oh, I, I don't think I'm straight or maybe I'm t- attracted to girls as well. I mean, I kissed a woman for the first time when I was in college and it was like super dramatic. You know, we had been on a silent retreat together doing service work in inner city Kingston, Jamaica, which I don't even think was actually particularly helpful because we had no real skills. We were just in college, you know. um, And was that to do with the church or is that to do with your college? Yeah, it was to do with the church, yeah, so. Because did you go to like a, was your college like a a Catholic college? Yeah, I went to, so I went to Boston College, which here in the States, it's like a place that's probably known most for its football program or for its basketball program both of those things in at the college level they're they usually do pretty well and I think that again it's like not hiding but when I was there you couldn't come out you could be kicked out of school for being gay and I just think that something that we watch on television like college sports day like it just is like a you know light and fluffy thing I don't I didn't go there realizing how brutal that would be because I didn't know gay people were real. So anyway. So you, you kissed a girl. You had a dramatic moment. Kissed a girl. 
heart-wrenching, you know, soul-tearing, ah, going straight to hell. I dated her for a few years. I also continued to date men, or at least let my friends think I was dating men, um, because mm -hmm. it just was not, you know, I had a few more years at this school. Nobody was like out proud and enjoying themselves. <laughs> was, was it like folklore that you could be expelled for, for coming out or, or did you actually know that that happened? So it, I never saw it happen, but it was official policy. So there was a oh, non-discrimination, wow. their non-discrimination policy did not include sexual orientation and students asked for it to be included and the university said no while I was there. So that was, that was also true for faculty. So though nobody was dismissed, it was an open conversation that that could happen. And I'm like, uh, you know, I'm 39. So I just think sometimes we like don't necessarily track when these things happen. This is pretty recent. Oh, totally. Because, you know, doing this podcast, people say to me, oh, but you know, like, it's, it, you know, it's fine being gay now. I mean, it's always straight people yeah. that say that. But yeah, straight like, people you know, do go, love yeah, to and, say and, that. And <laughs> like, yeah, in many ways it is. You know, I live with my partner. We have a very nice life. I can be out in my job. I do nice work. I can be myself. But yeah, then you go, well, you know, when, when like, you know, my partner and I were organizing our honeymoon, we did have to go, well, we can't go there. We could get stoned, you know? Yeah, so number one, it is never not on my mind, right? Like if yeah. I'm going to a new place or if I'm walking around with this haircut, like I fucking know it. Like I fucking know it. That's number one. Number two, this stuff happened so recently and it happened to us. And then I guess that's what I was trying to say when I was talking about the book. It's mm -hmm. like, I think I just had this expectation for myself that like, okay, well, I guess things have changed a little bit. So like soldier on. And it's like, yo, that happened to me like that. You know, mm -hmm. those few years, like when I was closeted, I came out to one person and she didn't speak to me for year for like the rest of the school year. My parents cried constantly after they found out. Um, and they took me to a therapist, which I thought was conversion therapy. Um, and they sat in the room with me and nothing was affirming. And I had like, I, yeah, I had I didn't have faith friends or family that I thought would accept this thing. And that, and for years of my life, and, and I was so young and I felt like, oh, it's already over. Like life is, my life is already ruined and I will never be happy. I was also, I mean, this is very serious, but I was also sexually assaulted during this time because I was trying to pretend like I wanted to hang around dudes. And so like my boundaries were really off and I wasn't able to protect mm -hmm. myself um, because I didn't know that I could pay attention to my body and what I wanted. And so all of this is to say, like, I think there's a, I think especially for the type of straight person that might be like, things are fine now. It's like, I still lived all of that. And thank God found comedy and thank God found friends that were connected to me through that right after school and things changed for me situationally but that like trauma didn't suddenly get exercised from my body or my mind or soul of course and did you feel like because that's the thing i'm only part way through the book but from reading lo lots of stuff that you've done and from watching your your comedy it feels like stand up it is the thing that sort of grounded you or put your feet on the ground or let you realize that you could be exactly who you were. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I would say no doubt that like stand up saved my life and found and helped me find a way to feel some level of safety. Then I got to the point where like most recently I have been working on expanding my non stand up trust of other people because I think that all of this stuff happened and then I got my first job working professionally in comedy the day after I graduated. And so then it was just sort of like, okay, well, this is how I connect with people. I, you know, make myself valuable. I charge tickets. I'm in a position of power. I speak, they listen. I out myself right away. So there's no question. You know, it just felt like, it felt like then it was like 18 years of sort of being subservient to someone else's idea of who I could be. And then it was kind of like 18 years of me running the show. Um, but a couple years ago, I just started to feel like I wanted to ha be a little bit more of an integrated person that had like a normal life also. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's hard to find that. We, as a, I, I'm, I'm sure it's the same as other professions, but with comedy, it's sort of... I, I mean, I don't, I've never gigged in the States, so I don't know anything about it, but, like, here, it's, like, totally, like, all-encompassing. Gig as many nights of the week as you can. I'll do three spots at that show, then I'll, I'll get on my bike, I'll go to another gig, I've got some new material to try, and then the whole day is just me going, that bit almost worked. <laughs> I wonder if I change four words. Yeah. And, like, anyone that's doesn't, anyone that's not a stand-up is like, does it really matter, those four words? And you're like, oh, you would not believe how much those four words matter. <laughs> that's going to change the whole, the whole bit. But it, it, it was it the same for you, is that... Because I felt, like, for me, stand-up was the thing that just, like, wrapped its arms around me, and I was like, oh, I can do this. I'm good at this. I'm, I'm good on my feet. I can make people laugh. I'm loving doing this. And the fun outweighs the nerves. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think for, for me, like, so a couple of years ago, I went through a divorce. And it was brutal. Like, I really didn't think that that marriage was going to end. And I think that the gift so far that I see from that experience is that like when I jumped from okay the world isn't safe and like faith isn't safe and like I don't know where it's safe oh god comedy is amazing and like I fully am integrated here and like these are the people that really know me um that area was just sort of blown up for a while like it just was it was like too tender you know I will just say I would never have chosen for that to happen, like for it, for it to be too tender, like no comic is ever like, mm -hmm. I hope this feels really emotionally loaded to come here and tell jokes. Like, no, that's not any, it's, fu it fucking sucked. There's no way around it. It's never when you're at your best, is it? When you're like, oh, do you know yeah, what? Yeah, you're like, I, I hope that like the one place I feel comfortable becomes uncomfortable. You know, like I, I wouldn't have chosen it, but um, it did force me to like make some changes um, just in my own life about how I, like what I bring to an audience versus what I bring to friends or like, the, I just real you know, I don't know. I realized I had sort of to what you were talking about. I had like no hobbies, no interests, no friends outside of comedy. It was my whole life. Yeah. I mean, I think that's the thing when your hobby becomes your job. Right. Because for a long time I was like, ah, oh, this, if this was my job, I'd be so happy. And then it becomes your job and you're like, oh, well, I, I don't, I can't do anything else. Like, well, what do I do for, for fun time? Like, oh, I'm gonna have to get into sports or something. Like, oh, jeez. I'll also say like, it's not fun to, I don't, I don't find stand up to be fun. Like it is a job that is exciting, adrenaline filled, challenging, like makes me feel amazing. I think it used to be fun. Maybe, I don't even know if that's ever been true. It's, I don't find it to be fun because it's your job. And like even hanging out with people backstage, it's all like dynamics and things to be navigated. Like I think it is an intellectual exercise. You know, it's like it's it, there are a zillion things that are awesome about it, but it's just not. Comics are not chill people, and other comics are not <laughs> chill toward me, and I'm not I'm not chill toward them. It's not. There's no like light fluffy camaraderie it's fucking cutthroat about joking around really i absolutely <gasps> i think that the the british scene is a bit fluffier than that there's a real sense of i think there's a real sense of camaraderie tell me what that it feels like there's like a couple of whatsapp groups that all of the female comics are on oh my god that's amazing what that would be like <laughs> oh by the way like don't work for that guy that guy's a creep oh my god are you serious like oh if you go and do that guy's gig he like he says there's a hotel like this is like when you're like newer and you're going around and doing spots and stuff like oh that he says there's a hotel but you actually have to stay at his house don't do that and then there's like yeah so there's like a, a bunch of different groups like that where people are kind of looking out for each other i fucking love that yeah so that's okay move move to london yeah i guess so <laughs> you can, you can I mean, join i mean i think like it's, it's I... one in 20 so it's it, it's a bit dodgy at the moment it's dicey it's an improvement it's an improvement. I do have to get there. Sure. Which, so I'll probably sure. be infected and change the numbers, but no problem. Um, well, I think I, I mean, maybe I overshot there. Cause I do think there's like some, there's certainly people I'm friends with and text with and like have lunch with and go on walks mm -hmm. with and hikes and stuff like that. People whose dogs I've met and people who've met my dog. <laughs> people sure. whose weddings sure. I've been to. But I think what I mean is there's always some element of work in the relationship mm, because yeah. it is okay. a co-worker relationship and they can be close friends but I didn't have 
uh, I had like one close friend who didn't do the same job that I do. And I think that like, I'm just not sure for balance if that is healthy for me. You can be super happy for people and you also want the gig. And I of just course. think to have some relationships where that's not even part of it, that is something I didn't know I was missing. Yeah. Oh, you can just have people you talk to and you're just totally in their camp and they're just totally in your camp because there's no competition. And oh, how, yeah. what a relief that is. My partner is has nothing to do with comedy and occasionally she will just be like, it's just comedy. That's what I'm talking about. Like, it's just comedy. That's what I'm talking about. And that's so healthy. Like, it's yeah, it's great and it's good and you did that show and it was great and well done you, but we'll still be like, you know, I'll go and do say a big show or tape a TV thing and then, you know, in the car home, it'll be like, how was your day? And she'll be like, oh, this happened and that guy at work and this thing and that. And, and it's like, oh, this is this is healthy. I think that's what I'm talking about. Yeah, I just think it's about balance and, and not wanting to live in a situation anymore where every interaction in my life also has like another side element. Well, um, oh, so what are you doing? Are you doing that? Oh, right. Okay, cool. And is, is that? Oh, right. No, I'm you know really what talking about. That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't realize that. Is that show coming back? Oh, cool. No, good for you. Good for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you know who's booking it? Yeah. It's I know. intense. I know what you mean. Yeah, it's, it's a lot. Yeah. It's a lot. Yeah. You need to you need to check out of that occasionally. Absolutely. And, and talk to people that are like, I don't know, a florist or yes. a farmer. Or yeah. Just exactly. someone who does a different thing. Um so like I feel like your stand up, you're you're sort of you're very out, you're very open. I would certainly say that when I I've been doing stand up for just over a decade, but I would say that when I first sort of started I became aware of you I watched loads of your clips online and I listened to your stuff on Spotify and it felt really affirming that there was someone that was like I'm that's gay awesome. and I was like oh god that's awesome me too and I'm doing the thing that you're doing on the other part of the world that's really cool I remember listening to one of your shows like on the way to gigs and being like ah oh, she's like me that's really cool I like that um, you know, because there's a couple of other queer female comics. It's, uh, there's quite a few these days, but certainly when I was starting out, there was like three of us. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, you know, and so feeling like someone else does your job and gets your life and is talking about it so openly. Was that something, you know, working out that you, you know, you started stand up just after being in this really sort of, I don't know, enclosed caged environment where you couldn't be who you were were you immediately out on stage or did you have to work out how to do that no i was immediately out yeah i right. like at first i did improv comedy so then you're not really out because you're like a pumpkin or some suggestion <laughs> that an audience yeah, member sure, might have sure um, sure, sure. But, a spatula yeah okay, exactly <laughs> um but when i was myself and doing stand-up i was out the whole time um, mm -hmm. and when I started about 15 years ago, um, there were like mega stars, like Alan was out mm -hmm. and Rosie O'Donnell. Mm -hmm. And I think Wanda Sykes yeah. would have been just coming out or I don't, I don't have the timeline on that, but she did. Well, well you really should. Cause you're like, you're one yeah. of the big gays. So if you've not got that, like on your wall, then I thought we need to yeah, end this podcast yeah, right enough, now. Like enough. I need the timeline. <laughs> this has been great. Cheers. Bye. <laughs> No, sorry, but, go on. Yeah, there were like people who had talk shows, right? Then under that, to like open micer level, there wasn't really anybody I was aware of at the time. Like few years in, I first became aware of Tig, um, mm -hmm. Nataro. Yep. But there was a gap when there wasn't really anybody. And then after that, then it was Tig and like, Kinda no one else, you know? I mean, where we are now, I agree, there's more like, there are people who are sort of like in the middle in that they are not one named talk show hosts that like everybody is aware of. But I think that that felt so far away. It's like, well, clearly I'm not like gonna go from being this open micer to being like Ellen. Ellen. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, I can't figure out the like through line there. Yeah. Yeah. What is the route? What, what, what's the next job along? Like, well, first you had to create a lot of controversy. Um, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I just, so, so anyway, I just felt like it was, I had like no idea what, what to do. And I just talked about my life and people did not like it. I will also say. Really? I, that's, that was yes. going to be my next question. Cause so the UK scene is 
like so small you know my tour will be maybe 60 dates I can do like a lot of cities in that I could I'll probably travel the whole country not going to every city obviously but I can go all the way up to Scotland and back down and through to Wales and play to loads of people but you know we're so, it's so small by comparison to you so you know I'll go to places that are certainly when I was gigging before I was touring when I was just doing spots you'd go to places and be like oh this is going to be dicey <laughs> I can tell before I go on <laughs> oh, I'm gonna have to sure. get my gag out about how dikey I look before anyone shouts at me yeah um, oh there's a tiny I'm so sorry. dog no please she has please, to be in my please. arms for a moment because I think, I think but, she but wants it's to a be. very cute dog what is what kind of dog is that she is like a a mutt but she's very she's cute. So people, she's adorable and she's really I, little. Yeah, she's very little. <laughs> That's really cute. Um, <laughs> I always love to pause a podcast for a dog moment. That's yeah, good. Yeah, absolutely. Um, but I need to let people know, you know, people are probably on their walks. You know, they might be walking through town somewhere. They, they need to know what I'm looking at. And yeah, it's a very cute absolutely. sort of a little friendly face. Um, so I, maybe it's uh, out of order of me to suggest this, but but you know, do correct me. But I feel like there are certain places in the states that could be horrific <laughs> for a gay woman to walk on stage. Um, is that true, or was that true when you were doing sort of you know the club spots rather than like obviously now people go people know who you are they go and see you because they like your stuff you've got an audience that want to watch what you're doing. But when you were sort of hey, I'm the ten spot. Or, you know, I've, yeah. got, I've got six minutes. Was that tough? I mean, I think it still can be really... Like, sometimes I will play a club instead of a theater. And the difference there for listeners is that at a club in the U.S., that might be just somebody who's there to see comedy versus, like, at a theater, that's somebody who's there right. to see me. And I think there's, like, two different, maybe three different types of, like, opposition that I have faced. And I bet listeners who are queer... I bet we've all had these experiences. So like the one is like dude with arms folded, no smile. <laughs> mm-hmm. I know that guy. He comes to my shows. Yes. So <laughs> dude with arms folded, no smile. That's the guy that when walking down the street, you see across the way and you're like, this dude is going to fucking say something. Like, I just fucking know this dude is going to say something. Right. And so in a show, I often will like acknowledge that person, bring them in. We have like a fun moment and then he's like on my side. But the alternative is like, if I don't do that, like you were just talking about, that person is like scary and threatened by me. And and like just to be around that is a pain. Like it's not, I know all comics have experiences of being, you know, heckled or like, of having, oh, tough crowd. But it's like something different when you're like, tough crowd that might knife me. You know, like that's a different thing (laughs) that you and I have experienced that maybe not, you know, everybody has. Um, So there's that person. Then there's like, I think another thing that used to happen is people would say, um, like, why do you have to talk about it? Which is so odd. And I know that that's something people hear like at work or from family members too. And it's like, have you been paying attention to this show? Everybody's just talking about fucking Everyone's dating. in their own show. Everybody's like, talking about body parts, making out. Like, everybody's talking about the same stuff. I'm just talking about the same... My... I don't have, like, straight material I'm not doing. Like, it's... This is my material because it's my life. <laughs> like, I, it's not... I don't have, like, these, like, really good... Here's how I make my boyfriend happy jokes. I don't have those jokes. These are my those jokes. You know, I just think there's, mm-hmm. like, a... A uh, fundamental oddity there. And I think that the third thing is like just sort of sometimes feeling on the outside with a group of people that you just like really, um, like I still sometimes wish that straight people could just relate to me better or dudes. I just did a podcast last night with um, some dudes who I was talking about something and one of them stopped me and said, like, you are so butch. God, it's like impressive how butch you are. And I thought, well, that was, I was actually being my softest self in that moment. So how can you not see who I really mm. am? And it's also like the use of language that's like, well, I know that this is a kind of word that might be used about a gay woman, so I'll use it. Like, it, there's something in that that's I like that. so, yeah. it lacks such creativity. Oh my God, that I love that. That's the word they went to. I love that, yeah. Also, like, I like that word, but I think... I think I wouldn't say that, you know, this were like a group of gay men. I don't know that I would say to them, like, 
you guys are being so like I just this is like not my personality you know yeah. um but I just think uh odd isn't it to be mm-hmm. a woman a queer person a like gender fucking person which is what I'm doing and just try to live in the world without like constant questioning someone questioning that yeah <laughs> yeah yeah I find that whenever I do a tv show there'll be someone that's like oh how long before she mentions she's gay and I'll be like I don't know I guess three minutes it depends when I get a chance <laughs> like I'll do it like just to let people know like, I'll yeah. ju- I'll ju- like but I'm wearing a tie I mean how much do I need to tell you I feel like visually I'm giving you everything you could want like do I need to say the words yeah but no I know exactly what you mean and so uh, before we go, um, I would love to talk a little bit about Queerty because it's brilliant. It's really important that I highlight sort of the social justice work that you're sort of a part of as well. Oh, you made a face then. No, Do I you winked like at that? you because, yeah. You... Oh, okay. Okay, good. Uh, I like, I keep, I take it, sure. It was a little butch, but I liked it. Yeah. Uh, but... <laughs> that was my butchest wink. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm just flitting across <laughs> like Tinkerbell winking at you if somebody goes, look at this, I love this it. full man. Anyway. Um... <laughs> Um, as I was thinking about chatting to you today, because it's seven o'clock here, so I've had all day to think about chatting to you. I, I wondered, I guess the question that I wanted to ask about the podcast, which guys, you've got to listen to, it's absolutely brilliant. Is all of that, I guess all of that is so sort of tied up in the fact that you had to be closeted as a young person. But the, yeah, the social justice element, do you think that's really linked to like growing up Catholic, how that was feeling, did you like feeling trapped to some degree that now, like you've got this platform and were you like, well, I'm going to fucking use it. Yeah. I mean, I do think so. I also will say like those stupid Catholics, like as much as I am so, you know, constantly furious with what they've done to harm the world, unfortunately left me with like a bit of an internal philosophy that's like leave it better than you found it and like i i that is where that's from you know it's from like growing up reading the freaking bible you know like i just you can be a stand-up comic you can buy a bunch of leather jackets you can move to los angeles and change your you hair dog. you can get divorced with the catch with the catholic church says also isn't a thing like you can you know you can live in abject sin homosexually and still like it's just the best message that i have heard is that like we're supposed to improve the place that we're in i just can't i can't figure out i have never i haven't been struck by anything that works for me that well since mm-hmm. Um, and it's true like in shows too, you know, like when you do have that 10 minute spot, like set up the headliner, you know, like it just, it's, I think it's like, I will never, I will never get rid of that. What a pain. I like that. No, I like it. (laughs) Sorry. I'm sorry that I like it, but I'm going to say it. I think, I think it's, I think it's positive. I'm going to say it. I will like come to in the middle of running some fundraiser, you know, it's just like, I'm like, I'm doing it again. Like I just cannot, it's just what's happening. So I'll let other people do other things, but this is just who I am. So thank you, Susie. Um, so I'm going to ask you the final question that I ask on the show, because we get a lot of listeners, a lot of our listeners get in touch. They're amazing. And there's a lot of young people that listen. And um, if there was a young person that was listening who maybe was going through, you know, something similar to you, like being at that Boston College or going to a very, or being in a very sort of Catholic or religious, you know, could be any religious environment. Um, and... You know, if you could pick up a little phone, maybe like a dream phone, you know, oh, an 80 yeah. star phone, if you like, whatever you want um, and, and give them, you know, a few words of encouragement or just let them know that it's going to be OK. What would you say? Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think that we have sort of covered it gets better as a community in the last two decades. Like, I think we really have solidified this idea for young people, for people who you're in a marriage and suddenly you realize you're, you're queer and you can't stay in that marriage or, you know, whatever it might be. And, and by the way, you can be fully queer and know yourself and you're with an abusive partner or, you know, you find out that you, you know, need to transition for your own safety or your partner transitions and you can't, you don't want to, you know, you can't, you can't make the relationship last. Like, I just think there, there's so many things. And I think a lot of times we focus on that it will get better and time does heal wounds, 
but also I think that we don't say it to each other enough as a queer community like this is fucking hard so like if you are a kid and you're in a super conservative religious situation right now or if you are in a pandemic or if your president should not even have a job at all um I think it's it's also really helpful sometimes just here like this is really tough and like it feels tough because it's it's fucking tough and like yeah you're gonna you're gonna get through this but also like what do you need to do right now do you need to listen to some hardcore taylor swift do you need to take a little nap on the couch taking care of yourself right now and not always focusing on the fact that it's gonna get better get really get really in it have the feelings that's what i would say that's perfect that is a perfect way to end the show thank you so much Cameron, I really appreciate talking to you. Thank you so much. It was really nice talking with you. Like, I loved it, actually. There we are. A brilliant conversation with Cameron Esposito. I absolutely love her. She's brilliant. If you're in the States, when she goes back out on tour, go and see her. Uh, We also chatted after she said she was planning on coming back to the UK at some point. So um, if she does that, I highly recommend you come and see her, the UK listeners. Um, I don't know about Europe. I'm sorry, guys. I'll, I'll check. Uh, But thanks as ever for listening to the podcast. I hope that you have a really good day. If you want to get in touch, you always can. The email is hello at suzyruffle.com. And until next week, I'll see you then. You take care. Bye-bye.